1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Richard Anton White, who wrote the book I'm Possible, A Story of Survival, a Tuba, and the Small Miracle of a Big Dream. Welcome to the show, Dr. White.
1: Thanks for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here.
0: I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about your book and why you wrote it. Before we dive into the book, I want to ask you the first question I ask all my guests, which in this case is a little bit odd because your book really explains everything about yourself. But my first question is always, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? So could we have a short introduction and then we'll spend the rest of the hour really diving deep into who you are in your book?
1: Uh, Well, my name is Dr. Richard Antoine White, and uh, my initials spell Ra, so my internet alter ego is Ra Tuba. If you want to Google, go right ahead. Uh, it still feels odd after nine years, putting DR in front of my name, but seeing that I'm the first African American in the world to get a DM in Tuba, I'm guessing it's okay. Uh, I look forward to Inspiring Hope, that's the purpose of my book. Whether you're at advantage or disadvantage, I hope it does just that. And I'm looking forward to collaborating and having a wonderful conversation uh, during this next hour.
0: I'm so glad that you're here and that we're going to have this conversation. Um, Could you give us the synopsis of your book? Because we we don't assume that everybody's already gotten a copy of it.
1: Oh, it's a true memoir. It starts from uh, my birth. Actually, the book actually starts with you. Being a part of my life and what it's like to perform to be a concert classical musician and then the book goes back and forth in time i i started writing in it and then when i read it i was like well this is really boring i'm just telling my story so it made sense to have a timeline that jumped around into the present the future and past and that's the way the book is structured and I tried to really relate stories to everyone because I believe everyone has a story. I believe everyone has stories of triumph. Everyone has stories of hardship. Uh, If you're gonna participate in this game called life, we all have to experience the roller coaster ride of ups and downs, and I wanted my stories to reflect or to connect with each of my readers. So I tried to be as authentic and real as possible. I didn't want extravagant vocabulary. It's pretty much straightforward. And I wanted everyone to be able to relate to it. Um, it carries you through my life from the beginning to the end. So there's nothing that I'm uh, shy to talk about. And the purpose of it is to really relate to people and to not have anyone feel as though they have to check their characteristics of personality at the front door. It's an open, free space and a book that allows you or inspires you to be you.
0: Writing personal stories um, can be really healing and and important to do the work on figuring out who we are and where we are. But publishing those is a whole nother leap. What inspired you to share your story, to go ahead and write it as a book and then make that leap of publishing it?
1: I got lucky uh, with COVID. The timing is just right now. I think the world is looking for hope. The world is looking for motivation and inspiration I got lucky in that prior to my book, I had a documentary and I still have a documentary out. It's called raw tuba. If you go to Magnolia network, it's called, hi, I'm Richard Antoine white. And I think it touched a lot of people. It won a lot of awards in film festivals. And as a result of that documentary, a lot of people were reaching out saying, Hey, I saw your documentary. I want more. I, I, I mean, it was amazing, but it's only 30 minutes. And I was like, you know what? I should, I should give them more. Uh My friends were astonished when I told them a book was coming out because they didn't know my life story of the hardships because I didn't want it to be my personality and I I didn't want it to define who I was. And more importantly, I am not a fan of well-intended tokenism. We can feel empathy for underrepresented groups or people that go through hardship, but I believe excellence is void of color or gender, it's just on the level or not. And what we need to do is provide the resources for people to achieve at the level of excellence. And that's one of the goals I hope to achieve with my book, to let everyone have that belief of all you have to do is start, great people aren't born great, they grow great. And I hope my book inspires that. And I ultimately wanted to just inspire hope and the time is now considering what we're going through. So I push forward with the publishing company Uh, looked for a lot of literary agents. There are a lot of people that I didn't have that are currently in my life. And if it felt organic and natural, the answer was yes. And I'm very proud that Macmillan had a great team. I love my literary agent, and we're now one big family. So everything had to come together for me to say yes, because I believe in things being complete, absolute, thorough, and complete. And if there was one part, you know, where, okay, I got the book deal, but I don't really like my agent, I wasn't going to move forward. And I think most importantly, I wanted to pay tribute to the village that helped me. Every friend, every mentor, every stranger that has come in my life has helped me be the person I am. And I wanted to give back. I definitely believe in paying it forward.
0: And that really comes through the final page of the book is the acknowledgments. And when I read the acknowledgments, it, we could sum that up as he thanks everyone he's ever met in his life.
1: Yes, I, I agree because I think everyone is somebody. We're put here to be somebody. And I think we've gotten, you know, so much information on social media. We've gotten, you know, I always say about social media is that everyone's a star, but yet everyone's starving. You know, uh, everyone wants to be popular, and I think we've gotten into some bad habits, you know, and we have to acknowledge there's a difference between recognition and acknowledgement. You drive down the street every day, you recognize the homeless person and you see them, but to acknowledge them would be to say, hello, how are you doing? Those are two different things. And I want to acknowledge everyone and I want everyone to pick up my book and to feel like they are somebody worthy of their own story being told.
0: You mentioned a minute ago about being popular and I don't think someone gets a Ph.D. in tuba to be popular. There are genres of music people who want to be popular really aim for. And while I love tuba, that that wouldn't (laughs) pop to mind.
1: No, I had a very I was I was uh Blessed to be in Tuba Royalty at Indiana University with uh, Mr. Harvey Phillips, the Paganini of Tuba. And he really inspired me. I'll give you guys a little preview. My next book will be called The Five Educative Languages of Teaching. And those five educative languages will be The Dreamer, The Storyteller, The Motivator, The Truth Teller, and The Freestyler. And Mr. Phillips was the dreamer. Uh, he didn't want anyone making fun of the Tuba. And he did five concerts in Carnegie Hall. He is the creator of Octuba Fest, Tuba Christmas, Tuba Valentine. You get the point. If we can put Tuba on it, it's a Tuba holiday. So the last day of last month was October 31st. And that day is also known as Octubaween if you're a Tuba player. <laughs> so uh, he told me once that. <clears throat> You're never ready to leave a city or state until you can say you've done everything there is for you to do. And I went, wow, I definitely can't say that. And he also told me that if you want to be successful in life, create something that is needed that doesn't exist and didn't do it. So he made me dream big and he told me to write down, what do you want to be and what do you want to do? And then, you know, when I start writing this, it didn't come out as, oh, I want to be a great tuba player. I want to get a PhD in tuba. What I wrote down was that I want to be a monumental figure in the world of classical music. And then I was like, so what is my purpose? And then many years later I took a self-help course and I found out that my purpose is just simply to inspire hope. So the PhD was part of the process. It happened to make I happened to make history along the way. But I think ultimately it shows people that You know, you can do things, even if you're a little uncomfortable. I never wanted a PhD, but I read a quote once and it says, never get in the habit of what's most comfortable for you over what's best for you. And so I guess in that essence, I I was comfortable. I didn't want to go to school, but I realized if I was going to be that monumental figure in classical music, it's best for me to get this PhD. So I did it.
0: Some people's stories about how they are where they are now starts with, When I was three years old, I knew exactly what I was going to do. Your story starts with you taking one step and then another step and then another step. When we meet you in the story as a very young child, you aren't dreaming of a PhD. You aren't dreaming of mastering an instrument. You aren't dreaming of inspiring hope. You're surviving. Can you take us back to... When you were a young student, and what it was like for you being in school, because I think a lot of people think, "Oh, everyone who has a PhD was a natural scholar," and you really unpack for us in the book that that wasn't your that wasn't your story.
1: No, and I think you know we all have deficiencies, and you know we all blessed with different strengths and talents. I think uh, first of all, we should dispel some myths in our country, and we should talk about some bad habits that we have as it relates to education. A couple myths that just irritate me a little bit is that, you know, some people may read my story and go, oh, it's just, you know, pick yourself up by the boots and straps and make it happen. Not everyone has boots and a strap. Or people say, you just work as hard as you can and it'll work out. I know plenty of people that have worked hard as they can and it it didn't work out. It takes a village. And I think two things help my early education and education throughout my life is that Everyone that was involved in my life, no institution or teacher ever gave up on me. And I think for all the educators out there that are hitting that brick wall, don't know what they're going to do, just remember, I'm what happens when you don't give up. And boy, that is worth uh, investing in. You know, I was once asked by a CBS specialist, Richard, you've been all over the world. You've done all these amazing things. What's your greatest accomplishment? And I said, my job as a teacher and mentor, because every day I get to go to school and make a difference in a kid's life, because that's what someone did for me. And being a teacher and a mentor are two different things. The teacher educates, the mentor really gets up close and personal with a kid's life. And I think it's important to acknowledge those. Every deficiency I had, the teacher was in some ways the true teller, which will, will be revealed in my next book in that they told me the truth. Uh, When I turned in my first paper in college, I was handed a map and directions to the reading and writing tutorial services at Johns Hopkins University because my vocabulary was not on the level. It was embarrassing, but boy, am I grateful that that teacher was honest with me and gave me the resources to achieve. I struggled in reading, I repeated fourth grade, uh, fourth grade was where i also started music uh music personality came to a uh, music educator i should say came to school with a whole bunch of instruments and me and my friend dante winslow who's an extraordinary trumpet player plays with justin timbalay queen latitha i said hey man we should pick trumpet I only got three vowels it's got to be easy boy was i wrong uh i was failing and my parents brilliantly had this amazing idea that they would take the trumpet. And if I wanted to get the trumpet back, that I would have to start passing. I've never repeated a grade since. And I think it was a great strategy uh, to get me to focus on my education. Whether I excel, whether I have deficiencies, whether I pass the test or fail the test, the best thing about every day for me is that I'm not done yet. So if I get a failing grade, I come back tomorrow. If I don't pass the grade, I'll just repeat it. I'll share a funny story. I don't want to give too much of the book away. But once me and Dante were sitting in class, and he's like, hey, man, I got 92 in the math test. What you get? I said, man, I got 72. He said, man, you got to study, man. You, you don't know nothing. And I looked at him, and I said, hey, man, let me tell you something. Come here. He said, what? I said, come here, man. Come closer. I said, look, when we graduate and we walk across the stage and they hand you your diploma, yours gonna say the same thing as mine. They're gonna say you got a ninety-two in math. He start laughing and he said, Oh my gosh, he's right. I should just start practicing trumpet more. So our priorities can be different. And we got to learn not to label and judge people because we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And the problem with our society is that we're willing to help. We'll give out level five help. But if you don't happen to achieve at level five, then, oh, you're lazy. You're not applying yourself when actually you may need level six, level seven help. And then you will excel. We need to learn to go the distance. We also need to meet students where they are. Find something that you absolutely love about each student because that's what you're going to lean on when you get to the point of exhaustion. And don't be deterred by the point of exhaustion because the point of exhaustion is where new beginnings happen. If you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. When you reach the point of exhaustion and you have to create something that is new, boy, then that's the essence of learning. Wow, we're learning things that we never thought about and we get to do it together. So the point of exhaustion is actually a blessing if it's perceived the right way.
0: There. Yeah. Many people in your village that you bring up again and again in the book, and I was taking taking notes about different people who really were key people in your life, and, and Dante was one who came up again and again. Partly because um, my reading of the book is there's an awful lot of how the hidden curriculum impacted you when teachers were saying they want you to practice and you were practicing for half an hour because they told you to practice. And he's the one who said to you, half an hour? Are you kidding? You have to practice. This is how long I'm practicing. And you looked at him. You couldn't believe that 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 that's what he meant, But you trusted him. You knew that he wasn't pranking you. That was really how long that he practiced. And So much of the book really shows the difference between the directions the teachers were giving and the way students understand them is very different. And it was when these things were unpacked for you more and more, then you were able to keep leveling up. But Dante was one again and again who kind of kept pulling you up and saying, hey, you you need to do it at this level.
1: Yes, I just spoke to Dante last week, and we had a you know loving conversation where we we gave each other a verbal hug over the phone because we recognized that – our commonality actually helped us and our differences helped us along the way. And I think, uh, you know, we always get in this habit of us against them when we talk about technology, new ways of learning. I think we should just embrace the concept of tradition in addition to. So I'm not trying to burn any bridges or tear down anything that got us to this point because obviously it should be recognized and it's valuable because we're here. But what I am saying is that Times change, things evolved. So how about let's keep your tradition. But in addition to what else are we going to do that? In addition to sometimes can mean, oh, this is a unique student. Our standard curriculum doesn't fit. So we may have to go outside the box. And then ultimately, you may have to have a curriculum that is influential with those teachers. You may have a curriculum that is a dreamer. That's a storyteller. That's a motivator. That's a true teller. That's a freestyler. And it may be a combination of these things through various times in one's uh, curriculum as they go through school. I think the the biggest the biggest danger to education and our current curriculum is to be so right as not to know that you could be wrong. I think we have to give the students a bit of respect, and we have to. Learn what we learn when we learn to cross the street. We have to stop, look, and listen. And when we listen, we have to pay attention. You know, oftentimes with with my significant other, she'll say something and she'll say, you, you weren't listening to me. And I go, I was. And then she'll go, well, what did I say? And then I have to admit, well, I was listening, but I wasn't paying attention. So there are two different things there. And I think we first have to stop Look at our environment. Be is it working or is it not working? You know, uh, we have to look. Look at the diversity that's in our class. Are we meeting the needs of that diverse population? And then listen. Are we listening to the people that we serve? Are we telling them? Because you know, you want the kind of engagement that is participatory. Not that you don't want the type of engagement that's just a dictatorship. And you also want to be the product of an education, too. The goal is never to win an education or to have this victory. The goal is to simply do your best collectively, and winning is a byproduct of that.
0: You mentioned in the book again and again that different teachers gave you another chance and you were surprised by it. How did that influence you now as a teacher?
1: You know I think uh it uh it it comes down to three season i've I've thought about this because I've been saying it a lot. I believe that in life we all want what I call uh lady liberty and it's broken down and together, so if you're wondering how my brain works with the village that I mentioned in my book it's together. And if you break that down, it's to get her. And that translates to me, Lady Liberty. And so we all just want choice, chance, and change. We all just want a chance to make the right choices to create the kind of change that's for the betterment of all. And what those choices come down to is either you give up, you give in, or you give it all you got. And I think my teachers gave it all they got, and then some. And I think that's what this ultimately comes down to, you know? Give it all you got. Giving it all you got doesn't mean the first sign of failing, uh, we're out the door. You know, it means that you recognize that failing is just a system of collecting data. And I have an acronym for failing. It's called finding an intended lesson in needed growth. What that means is that if you fail, there's something you needed to know that you didn't know that you now know so you can proceed forward and elevate yourself.
0: When you were very little, you were in a the public school near where you lived. But as you got older, you started intentionally seeking out music schools and getting in music schools. Can you talk about that path that you went through?
1: Yeah, I think we have to start recognizing environment and and the correlations between a standardized or traditional way of learning and the street. So I had a lot of street smarts and hustle within me, so I realized that you know you can't invest a hundred percent in everything in your life. Once I acknowledged what I wanted to do, I wanted to invest the majority of my time in that. Of course, you have to be well-rounded, but I knew that the majority of my life pie—if you draw a pie and you know break it up into the different sectors of your life—I wanted a significant part to be tuba. So. I started looking at academic like a hustle. If I'm on the streets, got to find some coins, got to get some food, got to find my mom, got to find shelter. So if I'm going to play tuba, like you said, got to put the time in, got to learn how to play different styles, got to see some different nationalities, how they play tuba all over the world. And I wanted to invest in this uh, standardized academic curriculum in a way that was relatable to me because I think oftentimes – when we develop these curriculums and we have the institutions, meaning the full walls and a roof, we encourage people to actually check their identity and personality and characteristics at the door, which makes an uphill battle already to begin with. Just what if we had an environment in our educational institutions that allow students to be who they are, embrace their characteristics, and we had an adaptable curriculum that was open and suited to embrace each kind of student. So I was lucky that I had the Street Smarts to adapt that street hustle into an academic curriculum and path moving forward.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the high school of the arts that you went to? You likened it to the TV show Fame.
1: Yes, I think think for all, all the problems we have in the world, first of all, I always say in every conversation that I have, there are a thousand problems in the world. And I think 99% of them can be solved if we were just kind to one another. The reality of it is we're not doing a good job in being kind to one another. The Baltimore School for the Arts is not without its problems. And I know recently, you know, with uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, everyone's really trying to establish protocol and statements for this. but. The country should just model schools after the Baltimore School for the Arts. It was designed to give inner-city kids opportunities they wouldn't otherwise normally have. And the difference in the Baltimore School for the Arts is as follows. One, it's a community. It's a family. We move together, and the adults run the school. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The adults run the school, and they're there to give the kids all that they have. There's a sense of belonging and togetherness that uh, embodies this sense of, of e- internal effort. And what I mean by internal effort, that if it was solely up to me, I probably would sit on the couch every day, eat donuts, potato chips, and play my Nintendo Switch. But because of the environment I experienced at the School for the Arts, I don't want to let you down. I don't want to let the person next to me down. And I don't want to deprive the world of the best version of me. I don't want you to deprive the world of the best version of you. If we both contribute the best version to the world, that has to equal something magnificent. And I think that's the kind of environment that the Baltimore School for the Arts embraces. Every day I look on Facebook, they're praising somebody's accomplishment or encouraging someone to go forward with something. And I think we have to remember that one of the greatest blessings we get as a kid is to have an imagination and i was blessed because my imagination in many ways actually was so strong that it saved my life i had to imagine a warm tummy i had to uh full tummy i had to imagine a warm blanket and i think we have to imagine things imagine things that's not possible or seems impossible because that's what it's about you know when we get these curriculums and we, when we take away programs and we're going to you know take away the space program, it's not about the billions of dollars that it costs. It's about doing the impossible against all odds, like my book. And we must never forget that the imagination has to be mandatory part of any curriculum, any institution, if you wish to see the kind of success that elevates humanity.
0: When you were there, they helped you with the Sea of college applications and figuring out that there was more funding available than than met the eye. Can you talk about the important role of high schools in helping students find their way to college?
1: I think, yet again, uh, it's that whole street hustle, having people that are informative. And it's always interesting in our country the rules that are law and the rules that aren't law. So if you make a rule, then you can change the rule. If you make a rule, everyone pays $50 application fee. Well, if someone can't pay it, you can change it because it's a rule. It's not a law. And it's it's always interesting uh, when companies choose to respect their rules over the individual in cases that will help the individual. I think you do the best you can. You ask the questions that you need to ask regardless of your ego or embarrassment And you hope that the village comes through to you and you do your homework. What I mean by homework is you get online, you look up all these scholarships and then ask every person you meet. You know, I was lucky. I ended up talking to a neighborhood friend who told me about House of Representative scholarships. You know, there are scholarships designated. Every House of Representative has a pot of money that they can designate for scholarships. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? I wouldn't have learned about that. I had a counselor that didn't mind getting on the phone and saying, look, this guy cannot afford all these application fees. What are we going to do? Turns out they can waive the application fee. It's a rule. It's not the law. And so I think oftentimes our ego and pride gets in the way of us asking for help. I think there's nothing wrong with asking for help, and I think asking for help and asking questions it's just a different way of getting your hustle on instead of an embarrassment. Just change the way you think about it. I got to make some moves. One of my moves is to ask for help because I'm I'm maxed out in terms of what I can do. There's nothing wrong with that.
0: In your particular um, area of study, there's a lot of audition involved. And going to the auditions is expensive. And when you were originally looking at the different music schools that you'd like to apply to for college, you were mapping out, it costs this much money to get to this place to audition. And it costs this much money to go to that school. How were the uh, counselors at your school instrumental in helping you figure out the, the, the money path to make that happen?
1: I think there is a bit of determination that you have to develop. If there's a wall in front of me I don't turn around, I can knock the wall down, I can go around the wall, I can climb the wall. Uh, I'm pretty determined, true to form. I am a Taurus, I'm stubborn. So when I looked at these places, I couldn't afford playing, uh, plus if I had to check my tuba. So then I was like, well, I'm not really old enough to drive or I am old enough to drive, I don't have a license and that's a long distance to drive. So no plane, no drive. Well, there's train. Well, the train is just as expensive as flying. So what can I do? Oh, man, there's Greyhound. There's the bus. It may take three days to get there, but I can afford this. So I go to the point of exhaustion every resource there has to be a way i dig into my imagination and say, what are all the possible ways that i could possibly get to these auditions and that's literally what i did me and my tuba on greyhound or peter pan bus is how i afforded to go to these auditions i would shovel snow i would uh, rake leaves cut grass save money and i think at that time man i could get like a round trip ticket for like 80 bucks to New York, from Baltimore, wherever I had to go. And and that's what I did. And I wasn't embarrassed by it. It was just my way. And there's something about building something from scratch or finding a way to do it where you're all in. I also think there's this notion that things are just supposed to be given to people. And that's just not true. I think the beauty of putting in work and working as hard as you can is seeing the results of, of that work and knowing that you played the hand you was dealt to the best of your ability, in general, that usually leads to something positive. I'm not saying it always works out, but it usually leads to the next step. And so when I was faced with, oh man, financially, how am I going to figure out this mountain? Well, I can start by just simply thinking about it. And that's a start. So I'm okay with it. I'm going to rest today. I'm just going to think about it and take action tomorrow. But we always have to look for the point in which we can just start.
0: You ultimately chose to do your undergraduate work at Peabody. And then for graduate school, you were going to be going out of state. And the title of Chapter 23 is Life is Fair Because It's Unfair to Everybody. And you've taken us to the point of the book where you've chosen your graduate school. You're ready to go. And then your personal life has some major emotional hits. One of your friends is shot and your mom has a stroke. And you're wondering if you should even go to graduate school and you're working with that dilemma. Can you talk about when your personal life and your professional life seem to be at odds?
1: It's always that duality of life. I don't understand how the universe uh, made it this way, but we have a left eye, we have a right eye, we have a left arm right on we have up down happy sad in love not in love you know there's always this duality whenever every every time something good happens in my life i expect the bad to be around a corner just because it seems like that's how the universe balances things i was off in graduate school had a scholarship was doing well came home from graduate school first christmas my cousin was the first murder of the year very tragic. My friend got shot in a, a robbery. Mom had a stroke. Uh, and I was questioning the purpose of life. Like, man, how important is it for me to go pay Tuva when these people have lost their lives or fighting for their lives? And in that moment, I realized that it's not all about me. Like that I need to go to school to show my mom that there's hope for something that she could feel proud about. I need to go to school because my cousin Tracy's no longer here with us, just to show people that it can be done. So, in that moment, I learned that wow, you know, everybody has to face hardships in life, but how we interpret them and what we choose to do with it is very important. And sometimes you may not be the centerpiece of that purpose, you know. And so, I ended up staying in school. My mom lived for a very long time afterwards. Uh, recovered from the stroke as best she could. Craig is still in existence. And I think we remember Tracy as best we can. I think the point there is that everything can be of value if you look at it the right perspective. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from Bill Gates. He says... I will always choose a lazy person to do a difficult job because he or she will always figure out the easiest way to do it. And there's perspective for you. So I think whether you have good times in life or bad times, I think you have to just refocus your binoculars or point of view and get the right perspective that allows you to move forward. And sometimes it may not be about you.
0: You've also done a lot of reflecting on the losses that you have. Your, your birth mother, Cheryl, she died when you were 19. And then when you were off on your uh, graduate adventures, you found out that one of your friends since high school, Tupac Shapur, had been killed. And every time you had another one of these losses to your village, it made you more determined to appreciate each day and what you can make of it is kind of how I was reading the book.
1: Yes, I think your interpretation is very accurate. I think no matter what you do in life and no matter how successful you get, we all have to understand two phenomenons. Uh, The first being that we all start living and dying the instant we're born. The second phenomenon is that it doesn't matter how rich you are or how much money you make, no one can buy more time. It's the one thing none of us can buy more, more of. So you better make the most of the time that you have. And I think one of my favorite quotes is, uh, procrastination is the arrogant assumption that the universe or God owes you more time to do what you already had time to do. So I always say, I don't expect that I'm going to live long. I don't know. It's just in my mind for some reason. So I'm trying to get as much as I can get done while I have the time on this earth. And then I realize that even if I live long, it makes me sad because I realize, I'm never going to get to do everything that I want to do. That's how short life is. So I'm trying to create a legacy through scholarships, writing my book, sharing my story, so that I can live on beyond my death. So if we believe that our ideas and that our works have life and it's a form of living, boy, why not contribute to that? So once your physical existence leaves, there's still this aura of your mental existence and the work that you've done. I think... Sir Winston Churchill put it best, right? We make a living by what we do. We make a life by what we give. So give the world your best, and I think immortality will be yours.
0: And we see that attitude surface again and again in some very unusual experiences that you have a lot of the jobs that you had particularly as a musician when you were in grad school when you showed up for it it was not what you expected when you showed up for the bugle and drum corps that was not anything that you were expecting from the uniforms to the marching to any of it and your initial feelings about it were not very positive but when you your attitude of all right, what am I going to make of this? And where is it that I'm going? And what is it that I'm going to learn surfaced? That's when it really became something for you. Can you talk about any of the examples of the book of something that you got to that was not what you thought you signed up for? And, and how that attitude of, okay, what am I going to make of this surfaced and, and where it took you?
1: I think if I think that old statement, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. I think we can choose to focus on our differences and highlight them, or in, s- in some cases, we can choose to focus on our commonality. I don't think anything is beneath me. If I had to go to work tomorrow and bus tables to feed my family or survive, I do it, and I do it with pride. I think everybody has a purpose in this life. Everyone has a mission, and I think it's important to respect the responsibility that comes with simply being human. And that's being kind, respecting one another. And it doesn't cost anything. So there has been plenty of times in my life where people that I worked with were astonished that I was here. I was getting this advanced degree or, you know, post-undergrad degree, but yet I was bouncing at bars or, you know, um, uh, busboy in hotels. Uh, The point is, at the end of the day, it's just work. You know, whether you're astrophysicist or you work at McDonald's, you have a job and you're working and you're contributing to society. We have to remember that it's our collective effort that matters because all these jobs have to be done. And I think if you make the most of every situation and do the best you can, the universe will have a conversation with you and will shine upon you saying, you know what? I respect that. That was really cool. We don't control everything. We want to, but we don't. I think a lot of times uh, you have to do things that you don't want to do. And I think it's important to do things that you don't want to do because life isn't going to let you out of that situation. It's not optional. And the more you embrace those things that you may not want to do, that there's something to be learned from it, I think it just enriches your life and it gives you a greater picture or a more vivid picture of someone else's life that you may have impact going down the line. So every job that I have, I respect. Every job that <clears throat> may not have been ideal, it has served a purpose and it has taught me lessons.
0: I think a lot of grad students can relate to the various jobs that you've had. Maybe they haven't had identical ones, but they've had to have jobs that were late at night or only on weekends, that things that you can fit in around your coursework and jobs that really on the surface, have nothing to do with your course of study. But the people skills, for lack of a better word, that you develop in having those, absolutely transfer to everything else you're going to do in life. I agree. Um, So when you were getting your master's degree, you got a job um, as a professor, you were teaching students, you were working in a symphony, and you were trying to decide, do I want or need a PhD? Can you take us back to that decision and why you decided to to get the PhD? Because at that point, it seems like you're living the life.
1: Yeah, so I think as far as the education, just to backtrack a little bit on the question we just left. I think I view every person has an empire, and when you start to build your empire, you have to think of it like a Walmart or a superstore. Uh, if I walk to Walmart and wanted water and they don't have water, I'd be pretty disappointed and might not go back to that Walmart. So I try to fix every deficiency that I have so that my store, my empire, my personal empire is completely stocked. So if I don't have water, man, if I don't play jazz, I probably better learn how to play jazz so that my <coughs> inventory is increased. You know, uh, and I think it's important for everyone to self-assess and reevaluate and realize that you can always wipe the board, have a clean slate and hit reset. I think reset is totally important because every store, think about it every day for that store to be ready for you to come in and shop and get the things you need. It has to be restocked. I don't think humans are any different from that. Uh, Now I'll fast forward to the question you just asked, but you'll have to refresh my memory where we were going with this. Cause I backtracked a little bit.
0: No, I love that you backtracked. It made me think of a friend of mine. Who's a, um, sh- she's a, she's a novelist. She had been a lit professor and she became a novelist and she's she's a beautiful wordsmith. And, um, we were having lunch and she looked at me and she said, you know, it's the same as toothpaste, right? I, they have to be able to sell it. What I write, <laughs> they still have to be able to sell it. Yes. Um, And so I was when you're talking about stocking the shelves, I thinking, yeah, she was very, very aware that her books were going to have to be stocked on a shelf. They were going to have to fit in a section and you want them to be the book that's turned out, not the one that you find by the spine. (laughs) And that's all marketing. And that's the same as what they're doing with toothpaste and and stores all over. Um, The question was uh, about when you were working on your master's and you were you were working as a professor, you were teaching. And you were working in a symphony and you were trying to decide, do I or do I not need to go on for the PhD? Can uh, you take right. us back to weighing out that decision?
1: Yeah, one of my mentors, the motivator, Mr. Daniel Perrantoni, a uh, provost professor at IU. He's like my dad, extraordinary. So much so that if you wanted to go stay the night at his house and stay in my room, you'd have to call me. Uh, I love Daniel Perantoni and Judy. Uh, he told me once, Rich, I know you want to just play in a symphony, but I'm going to tell you this because Mr. Phillips told me this and I've never told any student this, but it's meant for you to teach. And he said, well, how about this? How about you get the PhD, you take all the auditions and you always reserve the right to say no. That changed my whole life. So I was going to go for the military job. I was going to go for the symphony job. I was going to go for the teaching job because I wanted to reserve the right to say no. And what that means is that go and win and then decide if you want the job or not. If you go and you don't win, you don't have a decision to decide from. So no problem. So uh, that's my motto in life. Uh, And it started when I was questioning whether I should get the PhD. Reserve the right to say no. Get it. And then decide if it was worth it or not. But don't sit on the sidelines and say, oh, I could have or I should have. And when obstacles come up, I always think in spite of instead of because. Oftentimes, We're programmed to think, oh, because of this, I can't do that. Oh, because of this, I can't do that. I think in spite of this, in spite of the financial hardships, in spite of the roadblocks, I'm just going to show you because ultimately sometimes I think we talk too much and everybody has an opinion. But sometimes if you just show people, it's indisputable. So I intended to show people that you know, I could get a teaching job before I completed my master's. I can complete this doctorate even though I didn't want to, but I wanted to reserve the right to say no. And had I not completed it, I wouldn't have had a decision. There wouldn't have been history. But I make it a point to reserve the right to say no.
0: So how did you balance getting the PhD while you were working? Because that's that's a lot of work.
1: It was intense. I started it in 1999, didn't finish in 2012. I was working. I was making more money in studio recordings uh, in Indianapolis than I was when I got my job at New Mexico Symphony Uh, it's all that Harvey Phillips advice. You're never really ready to leave a state until you say you have done everything. So I put it on my list. I'm going to play in every orchestra in the state of Indiana. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to gig. I'm going to do it all. And I realized that when people talk about, you know, what are you going to play jazz? You're going to play classical music. What are you going to do? I realized, well, I don't have to choose. I can do it all. And then as I start coming into contact with the diverse kinds of music, the diverse education, I realized a couple things. Whether you study math, whether you study you know, music in terms of music history or whatever, when we use the English vocabulary, guess what? We all choose from the same set of words. Same holds true for music. Whether you're playing classical or jazz, we all choose from the same set of notes. How we choose to interpret them and what we choose to infuse in terms of nationality, you know, uh, culture, that's what makes a difference. But ultimately, we choose from the same set of notes. So I balanced it yet again by not wanting anything to be deficient. I realized that if someone calls me for a jazz gig and I can't do it, then that's food off my table. So I wanted to build my empire, and I wanted my empire to have as little holes as possible. So yeah, there were always nights where I was trying to balance school, trying to balance practice, but I discovered something called zero hours, meaning that there is nothing in my life that's scheduled at 5 and 6 a.m. in the morning. So if I got up at 5 or 6, boy, I got zero hours. I can capitalize on these zero hours. No one's usually doing anything 12 o'clock at night. So if I wanted to work 12 to 1, then went to sleep, there's another set of zero hours. So I utilize zero hours to do my homework in these zero hours to get my schoolwork done and then to work doing other hours. So that's how I balanced it, uh, the, the life of, of being a Ph.D. candidate and being, uh, uh, what do you call it in music? I'm drawing a blank right now, uh, freelance musician.
0: I remember using zero hours. I didn't have my own computer and often I couldn't afford the books, So I was reading books while the actual owners of the books were sleeping because that's when I could borrow them. And I was using the computers when the uh, campus uh, graduate student office was pretty empty because people were at home sleeping. So I could have the computer for a stretch to get a lot done on a paper. I remember zero hours, but they do take a toll on your health. And you did at one point have to take some time and be in the hospital and really focus on your health how are you working on the health balance part of your life
1: it's an interesting question i often wonder why i'm so successful in a lot of areas of my life and then you know i struggle with my weight going up and down you can't focus on everything 100 percent all the time like i just got from the gym today now that i have a few weeks off with just podcasts and radio interviews i'm back in the gym and there's routine and because of COVID, you know, my living situation has changed. So, habits are are being redefined. And I think, you know, just like a balanced diet, I think you got to make sure you get your dairy, you get your carbs, you get your vegetables. Your life has to be the same way. You don't really have to overkill in anything, but you need that balance. Uh, I'm a workaholic. I believe in what I preach, so sometimes I give to the point of my own health Uh, I have not learned that no is a real word and it exists like my book I'm possible even when it's impossible I'm at the age now where I'm realizing that vacation timeout is not optional so I think I'm trying to balance uh, health I'm trying to balance a, a vigorous schedule and then I'm also understanding that not everything can be on the menu You know, so either I'm going to have a Walmart and these are things we're going to sell and I'm going to make sure those shelves are stocked or I'm going to specialize in, you know, bread. And I'm starting to realize that I'm at the point in my life where I really have to focus and make sure that whatever I do, that it is balanced. You can't have a Walmart unless you have someone who cleans the floors. So I can't do any of what I plan to do unless I'm healthy because if my health goes away, it's all for nothing. So I'm really trying to figure out the balance and the combination of things in my life. And the way I like to do it is I just like this idea of drawing a circle and then making a pie and different different size pieces of the pie. How much of tuba am I going to contribute to the pie? How much family life am I going to contribute to the pie? And as you grow older, that pie is redistributed. So now I like playing with the puppies and hanging out with the family, whereas before it was just me and the tuba. So i got to kind of split that pie up right now. So I would say I'm doing above average on health and schedule, and I'm looking to, you know, if we talk about the credit score rating, I'm looking to have it be excellent. And that just means I have to learn to say no, and I have to figure out the proper balance, which only can sometimes be discovered through actual living. So I'm figuring it out. I hope that answers the question.
0: It does. The the opening of the book really takes us into the physicality. You're having to carry the tubas. They're very heavy. You have to bring two to an audition. Um, There's often stairs involved in getting to the stage. Musicians themselves, their bodies are also an instrument. So I think that's part of where my question came from. Taking care of yourself is essential for you to be able to play the tuba.
1: I agree. I think it's it's a complete packet, a well balanced diet, a well balanced makeup. I think uh, you know. I often say you need three things to be happy in life: something or someone to love, friends, family; something to do, work, job, school. To take care of those things in number one, and something to look forward to. When I won New Mexico Symphony, I had just lost probably about eighty pounds. I was as fit as I've ever been. <laughs> I was waking up in the gym with my roommate, Keita-san, Japanese roommate I had, six o'clock every day running. Uh, I really think it's about scheduling, prioritizing, and making that balanced life. You know, uh, is it tough? It is tough, but boy, the amount of time it takes to establish a routine and then just stick to it, the return is crazy. It's like investing money and not investing money. If you're going to invest money, you might as well make sure you see a return on it. And so going to the auditions, carrying the tuba, whatever, you have to experience it to figure it out, what to eat, what gives you the right uh, mode. And then after a while... You know, your words become actions, your actions become habits, and then your habits simply become a way of life. And I think that's what we're all striving for, is that ultimate way of life with optimal performance.
0: And for you, that has to include a village.
1: It has to include village, and now my life changing. I'm really struggling with how much a professor I am, how much a motivational speaker I am now, and how much of a tuba player I am. And I also realize that it's okay to reinvent yourself and you don't have to stay the same person and you don't have to fit into societal decorum. You know, I think you could have something that is new. You could be really original and you can reinvent yourself for the better. I think there's this attachment and sense of, of self-pride where I've done all this work. I can't leave it behind. Well, what is what is the body of work that you've done? leading you to and how many doors that you hadn't previously thought about has been opened. You'd be foolish not to explore these doors, or at least look at them. So it just means that growth shouldn't be stifled by your own opinions either.
0: Writing a book is so much exploration as well. What surprised you the most in writing this book?
1: Wow. That's an awesome question. And it's a first. Uh I think representation surprised me the most. What surprised me the most is seeing how much each underrepresented or group needs to see someone like them doing what they think is impossible or showing them that it is possible. The thing, uh, the two things that surprised me the most is the need for greater representation across the board in our country And then how little it takes to make a difference. Astonished. Blue collar family, eight to five jobs every day. And the little that they gave me made such an impact on my life. We are a wealthy country. We should be ashamed at how much more we can do. And that surprised me in writing a book that, you know, just how little it took to make such a monumental difference in my own life.
0: Towards the end of the book, on page 170, you you tell us some advice uh, a professor gave you so that you can level up again. And he says, are you using a metronome every time you practice? Are you using a tuner? Do you keep a list of your weaknesses? But he also asked you if you were keeping a journal. Um, As someone who studied journals uh, for her dissertation, I have to ask you, do you still keep a journal? And what did journaling do for you?
1: Wow, you're awesome. That's another first question. Uh, Yes, I still keep a journal. It's changed. Uh, I call journaling the truth meter, if you're talking about music, because every time I journal or record myself, it's the absolute truth. The recording does not lie. (laughs) Whether I want to believe it or not, it's right there in the recording. And my journaling has changed, whereas before it was just audio. Now it's audio and visual, I like to see what I'm writing, what I'm playing. And so now there's this element to journaling that includes videography and the audio element because I can see my mood. I can see uh, physical habits that I have. And I think what uh, journaling does to me, one, it exposes the truth. It allows me to be my own hero. I think oftentimes in life, you have to learn to be your own, own hero. Journaling allows me to give myself a hug, whether it's an oral hug, a visual hug. It allows me to be personal, up close and personal with myself. It's not always great news when I journal, but I believe it's the closest conversation about myself that I can have to revealing self-truths. And so I actually love it. I think it's essential to elevating because I think if you have deficiencies or problems in your life. You're probably doing something that you're unaware of, that if you start journaling, you can have a conversation with yourself. And I think we underestimate that power. You have to be mindful and careful of how you talk to yourself. You know, with social media, we're so worried about how people see us, what other people think. But sometimes you, you need to stop yourself from stopping yourself. And I think that's what journaling does for me.
0: One of the other things I like to ask people about is the dedication. And you dedicated your book to three very specific people. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yes. So oftentimes, you know, I have family members now that want to dispute what happened to me and say it didn't happen, which is astonishing to me because half of them, more than half of them, I would say 90% of them, weren't born. And if it wasn't for Facebook, I wouldn't know who they are. Uh, I think my mom ultimately is a hero. She did one of the hardest things there is to do, which is to give her child up so that they can have those three Cs, choice, chance, and change. Uh, And so my mom is a hero, have to dedicate it to her. And on her dying bed, the last thing she said to my brother was that I want you to be like your older brother, meaning me. And that always chokes me up and gets me emotional because it meant that she really loved me. And to say that in your dying words is really huge. And Vivian and Richard McLean, with all that they are and all that they have, they gave me an opportunity to be successful in life. I thank them for being kind. I think they represent this whole speech that I give about being kind. Uh, They were kind with action. They were kind with the way in which they love. They were kind with giving. And ultimately, they made an amazing life by giving to me. And I'm forever grateful for them. And I hope to set the example that they left behind. So I couldn't uh, think of any other dedication than to those three people.
0: Dr. Richard Antoine White, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your book, I'm Possible a story of survival, a tuba, and the small miracle of a big dream. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on NewBooks Network. I hope you will please join us again.